In the American justice system, innocent people have no access to prove their innocence. We need serious reform, according to our guest today. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. I was state senator in New Hampshire from 1990 to 2004. And during that time, in addition to the 23 other senators, I worked with 400 members of the House of Representatives. Now, you can imagine, given its size, there was a lot of interesting opinions. I heard a few notable quotes from some of those 400. When it came to incarceration, one older Republican observed of the people at that time caged up, Oh, they're all bad people or they wouldn't be there. That's a direct quote. <laughs> then I think about the word penitentiary, insisting other humans become penitent, which strikes me as a rather medieval concept. Certainly puritanic. Such reductive framing assumes the system of justice is objective, that it uses a method which nearly always protects the innocent and only incarcerates the proven guilty. Justice in a democratic republic has always been one of the most difficult and severely unsolved issues we have always faced. And since the 1970s, the incarceration rate in the United States has steeply increased. It's a rate that ranks the U.S. and nearly all other uh, individual states higher in incarceration than all other countries. We're putting a lot of people behind bars. Of course, we need to protect society from people who present a danger to us. But the current system is just so brutal, so medieval, and so many innocent people are left languishing for years, sometimes decades, as their families suffer. Looking back in Western history, the great philosopher Plato could never fully resolve the issue of justice. And maybe there are no ideal answers, but our guest today, Tim Backen, author of the soon-to-be-released The Plea of Innocence, Restoring Truth to the American Justice System, makes a compelling case for reforming our adversarial legal system to help people erroneously charged with a crime gain access to the facts they need to affirm their innocence. They don't have that access now. Rather than simply pleading not guilty and remaining silent, innocent people could possibly be able to speak the truth of their innocence with this reform and with the full cooperation of the government. That would be a big change, which many agree is long overdue. Our guest Tim Backen raises the question of what if we could make a change in our criminal justice system that would dramatically reduce the, the incidence of innocent people being convicted in the first place without increasing the likelihood that guilty people would evade punishment. Is it possible? The fact is, as our guest argues, with no effective way to find the truth, an innocent person is in great peril once he or she is charged with the crime. Think about that. An innocent person is in great peril pretty much as soon as he or she is charged with the crime. Our guest today is Tim Backen. Thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks, Bert. Thanks for inviting me. Tim Backen is the first civilian promoted to professor of law at West Point, the United States Military Academy. He practiced law in New York City, including as a prosecutor in Brooklyn. His previous books include The Cost of Loyalty, Dishonesty, Hubris, 
and failure in the U.S. military. Providing concrete steps for reform, The Plea of Innocence has been called an important book for everyone in America with a stake in bringing real fact and the truth back to our justice system. And if anybody knows people who've been put in the mechanics of the justice system, they know it needs major reform. Well, in what ways, Tim, is the plea of not guilty insufficient, especially for the majority of cases in which the defendant cannot afford a private attorney. How is the plea of not guilty insufficient in those cases? I took on this project in a very unsentimental way. The reality is that probably most of the people who are arrested in this country, about 10 million people a year, are guilty of some offense probably upward of 75%. But nonetheless, among those guilty people who plead not guilty, there is a number of innocent people who are not only not guilty, that is the government can't prove they're guilty, but they're absolutely innocent. No one knows for sure, but the best studies indicate that probably about four to 6% of the people who are convicted of crimes in the United States are actually innocent. They did not commit the crimes. It's not just that the government couldn't prove that they committed a crime. It's that they are actually innocent. One of the difficulties our country has had, and any country for that matter, is that we haven't discussed and certainly haven't determined the number of innocent people that we can accept Mm. as a way of life. In any system, regrettably, there will be innocent people who are convicted. The question that we haven't asked fundamentally in the beginning is whether 6% or 4% is too high a percentage, is too low a percentage of people who are innocent and convicted, or a percentage that is acceptable. I've said that despite not having that discussion, we can move beyond it and try to find whether the 4 or 6% of the people who we believe are actually innocent, can be proven to be actually innocent and can escape imprisonment. And finally, as part of that introductory comment, I would note that, as I mentioned, every year there are about 10 million people who are arrested. And every year, and the number is lower now than it was in the past decades, as you noted, there are probably upwards of 1.5 to 2 million people who are actually in prison. That means we have perhaps up to 80,000 innocent people who are actually innocent, but still nonetheless reside in prison today. I've proposed, and I'm happy to talk about this, and I appreciate your introduction, a way to what I believe will reduce the number of innocent people who are convicted without permitting guilty people to claim to be innocent and themselves be found not guilty at some point in the process. Wow, interesting. And it is somewhat, you know, complex. Uh, Legalese is an interesting language, as I learned while working at that Uh law factory (laughs) in the Uh statehouse, making the laws, uh, the Uh difference between not guilty and and innocent. And it it really, it is is different, Uh because not guilty is just the government is not able to prove what the the, uh, person charged is, is guilty. But that person doesn't really have access to a, a positive opportunity to, mm-hmm. to, to prove his or her innocence. And, and that's what mm-hmm. we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, so about what percentage of people convicted are truly innocent, do you think? One study estimated that it's 4.1%. 
That was a study mm-hmm. from 2014 led by a law professor, Sam Gross, at the University of Michigan Law School. What Professor Gross and his colleagues did is to calculate the number of death penalty convictions mm-hmm. and sentences from the late 1970s to 2004. And the reason they looked at death penalty cases is that in those cases, there are more resources allocated Uh, to defendants, and therefore there is a greater likelihood that an innocent person will actually be discovered. Their conclusion through various analyses was that 4.1% of the people who are actually convicted are uh, actually innocent. There was one other more recent study from 2017 conducted by criminal justice professors. It was strangely, it seems, in the beginning, but not really, a survey of prisoners who were newly convicted and in a Pennsylvania state prison. And they, the prisoners themselves, and through various statistical analysis, the researchers concluded, believe that about 6% of them were actually innocent. That is to say, it doesn't appear that the prisoners were arguing that they had been wrongfully convicted, except in 6% of the cases. The case where there was the lowest percentage of prisoners, the kind of case where there was the lowest percentage of prisoners who believed that they had been wrongfully convicted despite being innocent, was drunk driving cases. And presumably the reason for that is that there is scientific evidence in drunk driving cases, such as blood tests. Uh, Sure. And the case in which the prisoners believed that they had been wrongfully convicted and claimed to be innocent were uh, sexual assault cases. Mm, interesting. Yeah, that, that drunk driving, that's, there's, there's positive proof one way or the other, the blood alcohol, mm-hmm. where, uh-huh. whereas a, a person who may you know, maintain his or her silence and, and plead not guilty doesn't have access and to yes. to to specific quantifiable numbers there, especially uh-huh. if uh, that person is uh, perhaps indigent or doesn't have a lot of money. Right, which is a critical point that yeah. you recognized and one that you probably saw in your days as a legislator, and that is that the reality that most people who are innocent and accused of a crime, as well as those who are not innocent and accused of a crime, cannot come up with enough money to mount an effective defense. And I don't just mean people who are without significant means. I mean the middle of the road person or middle of the road family, economic wise, Mm -hmm. simply uh, do not have enough money and wherewithal to defend themselves. In the more serious cases, there is the additional difficulty, besides no money, is that the person who's charged is often in prison at the time that he or she is proceeding to trial. And it's just very difficult to imagine sometimes, but it does happen, of course, what it's like to be imprisoned and not have enough money to make bail and get out and try to defend yourself, but to know that you are innocent. And that's compounded by the other reality is that unfortunately, almost everybody, including your family and friends, believes you are guilty. That doesn't mean that they won't stand behind you or that somewhere on the surface, they won't support you. But in their heart of hearts, they even question whether you, who uh, is the, the innocent person, 
actually committed the crime. And the reason for that is by the time somebody is in prison, uh, police have arrested that person, but that's only because usually a witness has identified that person. Mm. A prosecutor through the grand jury or through a judicial proceeding called an initial proceeding before a judge uh, has determined that that particular person is charged justifiably. There's probable cause to believe the person committed the crime. And in all respects, almost all respects, except for the defense attorney, the innocent person is mostly alone. And Mm -hmm. in that circumstance, it's almost impossible for someone to provide exonerating evidence, much less find exonerating evidence. Here's an example, a very basic example. If Uh, Somebody goes to a donut shop some night and buys a donut at about five to nine, and then he goes home. The next day, a detective comes and asks him, where were you last night? Of course, somebody should always remain silent in that situation, especially the innocent person, because it means that the detective has information that the person who bought the donut was at the diner or the donut shop uh, last night at about nine o'clock. Let's say the person thinks I'm an innocent person. So therefore, of course, I will speak the truth. And he tells the detective, yes, I was at the donut shop last night. Now, combined with the clerk's identification of the donut person as the person who robbed the clerk last night, that's more than enough evidence to hold somebody for a robbery charge. And the reality is that's a very serious crime. And many people are kept in jail uh, during the pendency of their processes up to the trial, up to and through the trial. But just imagine what it's like not to have resources. A lot of people Mm. think you committed the crime, you're in jail, and you have no way to go out and look for some alibi witness who says that at 9.05, when the robbery actually occurred, you were not at the donut shop, but you were driving down Main Street in downtown somewhere. And moreover, you don't have a chance at all to go look for the person who actually committed the crime. It's a very difficult situation because nobody nobody might be too strong, but the reality is most people have difficulty believing that somebody who's arrested and charged by a grand jury or held by a judge is innocent, but they truly are some of them. And oh my goodness, there's so many questions that brings up, uh, you know, police say, well, this is the person who did it. And the the, and the individual says, No, I didn't. Who's who's got more credibility? And and, you know, that's just sort of built into the to the system. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and and as you say, you know, it's it's like the presumption of innocence. Boy, that's sort of that's rather difficult to maintain in this mm-hmm. system. The presumption of innocence. Mm-hmm. And and as you say, the current system of justice is adversarial and mm-hmm. has been for some three hundred years. I wonder mm-hmm. if you could tell us what you mean and what are the inherent deficiencies. In this setup, isn't the truth the primary goal of this legal system? Talk about that adversarial uh, uh-huh. system and how perhaps the truth may not be the goal. The truth is an aspiration, but it's yeah. not a requirement for the resolution of cases. The adversarial system started in England in the late 1600s and the early 1700s to deal with abuses of prisoners in those days who were not entitled to representation. Once prisoners developed the right to representation to attorneys, they 
in large part have stopped speaking. That, as I've described, is a very difficult situation, especially for the innocent person, because when lawyers are doing the speaking, then the best witness in the case, the innocent person, doesn't have an opportunity to speak up. However, there might be very good reasons for not being willing to speak up and testify at a trial, for example, if you are an innocent person. One is that you might have prior convictions. And some people who are involved in alleged crimes are rightfully accused, but the people who are wrongfully accused are sometimes in difficult situations because after all, crimes occur in difficult environments. And in those environments, there will be people with prior convictions and they will sometimes be accused falsely. But what defense lawyers do not want to do, or at least very reluctant to do, is to call a witness who has a prior conviction because then the jury will hear on the prosecution's case that the person was convicted previously of a crime. And jurors, no matter how much they're told, don't consider whether the previous crime indicates that the person on trial is convicted of the present crime. Just consider the present crime, only consider the prior crime to see whether the defendant who's testifying is truthful. Jurors have a difficult time doing that. And so I can kind of summarize my response to your apt question by saying we know that there are a few things that supercharge a conviction uh, the likelihood of conviction once somebody is arrested one is a prior conviction as i just mentioned Mm -hmm. another is age Uh, youthful people are brought into the system and not believed as much as older people and surprisingly what uh, we've learned from recent research is that when family members testify on your behalf that you were at home watching TV instead of at the donut shop at 9.05 last night, there's a greater likelihood that there will be a conviction as opposed to the family members not testifying. And yeah, it's, it's a strange thing. And the, the reasoning is that the family members are acting as character witnesses, not facts with, fact witnesses. And there's some... Um, truth to that. There's resonance there because family members, of course, want to protect another family member. But what does that mean? It means that a person who's without resources in it is in jail. He has a prior conviction and can't testify. He can't call family members who are the people who are most likely to have seen him at 905 last night instead of uh, his being at the donut shop. And he's young. And in that situation, it's just very difficult for the innocent person to mount a defense. Wow, it is difficult. And and for those people who have been, you know, distant from the uh, system of justice uh, in the United States, uh, congratulations. But a lot of people (laughs) have been hurt a lot by this. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is keeping democracy alive. And we're talking about a key aspect of democracy that we don't often consider, and that is our system of justice. Our guest today is Tim Backen, who's got a new book soon to be released called The Plea of Innocence, Restoring Truth to the American Justice System. And juries, 
it, it, you know, as you say, when somebody introduces something and and one side will say this is important, the other side says, oh, don't pay attention to that. Strike that from the record. Yeah, really? uh -huh. how the heck is that going to uh -huh. happen? Uh -huh. But juries are often kept from learning information about the defendant's character. You suggest uh -huh. a person's good acts should be admissible in court, and the jurists ought to be able to directly ask the defendant and witnesses questions on their own. Uh -huh. That's pretty radical, is it not? It's different. I don't <laughs> view it as that radical because we have a counterpoint to that in prosecution cases, and nobody suggests there should not be this option in prosecution cases. That is when the prosecution goes forward with evidence. In sexual assault cases, there is something called an outcry witness. Hmm. When somebody complains of a sexual assault, she or he is ultimately going to go to some person. That first person that the complainant goes to is called the outcry witness. Huh. That normally, that fact that that complainant went to an outcry witness and said that I was sexually assaulted in other trials, in other cases, cannot be admitted into evidence because it's an out-of-court statement that we don't need to consider because we can bring that person into court and we can ask her or him what happened instead of asking her or him, did you tell somebody immediately after the sexual assault or as soon as reasonably possible after the sexual assault that it occurred? And, and normally that can't come in in other cases. Did you tell somebody you were robbed? Did you tell somebody that somebody stole furniture from your store? That kind of evidence cannot come in, but it can come in in sexual assault cases. And the reasoning is that the legal system and society via the legal system believe that because somebody in a sexual assault case came forward and told somebody an outcry witness, like a friend, as soon as reasonably possible, then the person who makes the complaint of a sexual assault is more likely to believe be believed and is therefore more truthful. I've uh, said that I don't see a reason why somebody who claims to be innocent and is willing to speak up and in my new system, my revised reformed adversarial system, a person who pleads innocent would have the requirement to speak up. I don't see any logical reason why a person who's willing to speak up like a complainant at trial, which is a very difficult thing to do in a sexual assault case to testify, should not have the opportunity to tell the jury that as soon as I was, in his perspective, falsely accused of a crime, I claimed that I was innocent. I did not remain silent. I did not exercise my constitutional right. Mm. Instead, I immediately said, or as soon as reasonably possible, that I was innocent and I explained the reasons why. That would be one way to help protect the person who's in jail, for example, and can't investigate finding an alibi witness and who has a prior conviction and more difficulty testifying uh, to show that he is in fact innocent. It's just one indicia, one method to show innocence, and it's based on the prosecution's right 
to introduce the same kind of evidence in one type of case where a witness comes forward as reasonably soon as possible. Interesting. I've, I've heard you use that word reasonably a few times, and I know that that is often a word that's used in, in court. And how the heck does one define what is reasonable? That is not exactly quantifiable. It's an interesting mm -hmm. difficulty, I would think. It is. And one way to look at this, or one way to think about how imprecise mm -hmm. the criminal justice system is, which is what you started uh, saying at the beginning, is uh, to consider the age of human beings. Human beings have been around about 200,000 years, maybe uh, 3,000, uh, 300,000 years at most. But uh, it took us a long time to develop uh, combustion, uh, nuclear power technology. Why did it take so long? The obvious reason is that we couldn't figure things out quickly enough. It takes a long time to figure things out. Mm -hmm. What people do not understand, Bert, and what you noted very aptly, is that the criminal legal system is not something uh, where we can dial up a result and put in mm -hmm. variables and think that we're going to reach a correct verdict. It's based on concepts that are inherently vague, yeah. what a reasonable person would believe, right. beyond, a, beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. I plead guilty. I plead innocent. Those are almost undefinable. And so what we're left with is very, very vague concepts. And we ask jurors to apply those vague concepts beyond a reasonable doubt to the facts they hear at a trial, when in reality, those facts have occurred probably a year or longer previously, and they're relayed by witnesses who saw or claim to have seen what happened a year or so ago and are now testifying in trial. Currently, there's not a better way, but nonetheless, we don't rec recognize how uh, rough our uh, justice is in the sense that mm. we're only reaching rough estimates of what happened. Oh, yeah, the current system, as we, as you emphasize, relies on witness testimony and people's interpretation. There's something called human error. I mean, you brought up nuclear power. Mm -hmm. Well, if it weren't for human error, nuclear mm -hmm. power might be a little bit better. But there is <laughs> human error. Mm -hmm. And that's, mm -hmm. that's a really thorny, difficult problem to address, human mm -hmm. error. W what can be done to actually address this human error? What has historically been done in the innocence movement, and that started, most people would believe, around uh, 1989, when with the advent of DNA, the first innocent person uh -huh. who claimed to be innocent was found to be innocent because of DNA. Since then, what people in the innocence movement have rightfully done is to focus on the procedures in the movement, uh, the mm -hmm. uh, uh, lineups that defendants are in, police activities, prosecution discretion, prosecution failure to turnover, exculpatory evidence, defense mm -hmm. attorney error, uh, defendants who confess to crimes that they did not commit. All of those uh, 
attacks on those processes are justified to some extent. But at the end of the day, no matter how reliable we make those processes, as you noted, there will always be human error in the system. Witnesses will always misidentify somebody. Mm. Therefore, I've said it's not enough to try to make the current processes better. We should try to do that. But those processes will be forever infallible because we inject human beings into the processes. And they, of course, are forever infallible. The only way we can avoid that, or at least mitigate the air that comes from human beings, is try to find facts that are incontestable. That is to say, mm -hmm. exonerating facts with which nobody would agree. The example that I've used uh, in our discussion, the donut shop robbery, mm -hmm. the only way that we're going to be able to find that uh, our innocent person uh, is in fact innocent is to find somebody, probably not a family member, who saw him at 905 uh, knowing that the uh, actual robbery was at 905, but he in fact bought his donut at nine o'clock. You have to find another witness. You have to find mm. extra facts. Mm. And that can only be done by extra looking. It can't be done by defendants who are in jail and who have no resources, even if they're not in jail and have no resources. Most people don't know how to navigate the legal system. And certainly people without resources have very little opportunity to hire investigators to navigate the system for them. Boy, that is for sure. It is a difficult system. And, of course, part of our current system is what they call the discovery phase. What about that? And in what ways is it not good enough in terms of finding evidence that could exonerate to prove their innocence? What, what would that look like in ways that, uh, that the discovery phase is not quite good enough? So let's take a new case and move on from the donut shop case. I saw this case a couple of days ago. It's out of Fort Myers, Florida. A man and his friend were driving in a car one night and the friend was driving and the friend was driving 100 miles per hour and the man in the car who survived was in the passenger seat. <clears throat> there was a terrible accident and after the end of the accident, the car came upright, but it was pressed against a pole. The right door of the car was pressed against the pole and the passenger could not uh, get out of the car that way. Right. And he claimed that a passerby came and pulled him out of the driver's seat of the car. The driver of the car, the actual driver of the car was ejected from the car. Mm -hmm. And the police said that this shows that the man who was in the passenger seat was actually driving the car. And as a result of that, they charged him with a homicide oh my. for reckless driving. But his problem was, the innocent man's problem was that he could not find the passerby, the good person who pulled him out of the passenger side of the car. And the police had a photo of the good person, the passerby, who pulled the innocent person out, out of the driver's side of the car, but they uh, couldn't find him. They forgot to take down his contact information. Mm. There, was, there was no way to find him until something happened. 
And the defendant who got charged by the prosecutor asked the prosecution, can you please help me? And in the adversarial system, what does the prosecution always say? No, I cannot help you. The evidence shows that you were driving the car. You're charged with a reckless homicide. And in this adversarial system, uh, the innocent man was left to his own devices. Unfortunately, what he did or what he uh, should have had the prosecution do for him or to help him with was to go to an artificial intelligence company, which Mm. exists, and ask the artificial intelligence company to scan all the faces. It apparently has three billion faces. And that's another issue, whether that's a good thing or not. Uh, (laughs) Lots of reasons why that might not be a good thing. But nonetheless, it turned out to be advantageous to this man in this case. The company said that it would only work with official police agencies, but it made an exception in this case and worked with this man, this innocent man. And he eventually found in St. Augustine, Florida, the man who had pulled him out of the car. And we know it was the same man because the police took a photo of him, or at least on their body cams, they showed the photo. But he was able to find the man through artificial intelligence. And then that man who uh, saved the innocent man in the car told prosecutors his story and the prosecutors dropped the charges. That's uh, an anomaly. In In most cases, the innocent person is left to his own devices right. and cannot find the exonerating witness. Oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, that's so difficult. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Tim Backen, who has a soon-to-be-released book, The Plea of Innocence, Restoring Truth to the American Justice System. It's not something those of us who are not... Uh, subject to uh, the system of justice, think about very often, but boy, a lot of people are affected by it. Can we require that the prosecution actually join in the effort to find exonerating facts? They don't do that now. That's sort of a combat ethos now, as you say. Why is it important for prosecutors is it important for prosecutors to make a diligent and reasonable, there's that word again, reasonable search for exonerating facts, asking the prosecutors to do that as well? That's that, that's pretty different. I believe that prosecutors should be willing to do this. They're not, as you noted, required to do this in the current adversarial system. Right. But the only person who can really do this or the institution that can do it is the prosecution system. And the reason why is that the prosecution is supposed to try to find who actually committed the crime. Defense attorneys, even if we gave them all the resources in the world, don't have a duty to society. They have a duty only to their clients. Moreover, prosecutors have the authority to obtain search warrants, issue subpoenas, work with the police. They have the resources to find witnesses, Uh Mm. unlike the defendant, unlike Anybody else in the system, no matter how much money we gave defendants, no matter how rich a person who is accused of a crime is, he or she does not have the authority that prosecutors do. They are the people, the prosecution institution, that has the ability to find the exonerating facts. I've said that they might not do it, 
but they do have a responsibility. But if a defendant who says I'm innocent and is willing to speak to them, he waives his right to remain silent and speaks to them, then they should have a duty to go forward and try to find the exonerating evidence. If they don't, then the result will be that the person who claims to be innocent and who spoke what he or she believes is the truth will have a right to have the judge tell the jury at the trial that the prosecution uh, did not act according to what the defendant wanted, and therefore the jury can draw an inference based on the prosecution's failure to look for what the defendant alleges to be exonerating evidence, uh, could have found exonerating evidence if it, the prosecution had looked. Uh, interesting. And and in so many cases, you think about well, the, the, the title of a case, it's the state versus something or, you know, somebody. Uh, and you yes. think about where is the power? Where are the resources? The individual or the state? <laughs> yes. And and, yes. and the state has a heck of a lot more resources. No question about that. And it's kind of slanted that way. Yes. At, before 1963, when the, the Supreme Court found a right to an attorney, Vanderbilt law professor Sarah Mayo wrote in something called Free Justice, I question that publication, that many, she said, many attorneys thought that the idea of public defenders, quote, smacked of communism and would lead to the socialization of the legal profession. Uh, you got any comments on that? <laughs> public defenders are absolutely necessary. As yes. you mentioned, I was a pro prosecutor, but I would be among the first to say that defense lawyers and uh, public defenders, private defense lawyers and public defenders are absolutely critical to the justice system. And we need them. We need them not only to protect innocent people, oh, but yeah. we need them to protect defendants who are actually guilty, protect their rights so that their rights are preserved for all of us yes. who are not uh, not guilty, well, those of us who are innocent. But one of the problems is, and I note this in the book, is that public defenders are very overworked and they have relatively few resources. There is a constitutional mm -hmm. right for every defendant, as you noted, to have a lawyer. And there is a constitutional right for every defendant to have an investigator if he or she cannot afford one. But what has happened, for example, where private defense lawyers are defending somebody, is that they refuse to engage private investigators on behalf of defendants. And private investigators have not nearly as much authority and ability to find witnesses as prosecutors. And the reason that the private defense lawyers who are taking on cases, they're still paid by the, the state. They right. just don't work for a public defender institution. The reason that private defense lawyers do not hire investigators is that the private lawyers are paid so little that they can't afford to run their private practice and work extra hours with investigators. Mm. And instead of relying on investigators, at least this is my theorizing as to why the study showed that investigators are not being hired. They're spending their extra time working on private cases, civil cases, 
where they can earn more money for their practices and their families. That's not entirely unreasonable because they can't exist as um, lawyers in their profession if they're not making enough money to pay the bills. So the um, lack of resources in the system extends not only to the defendant, but also to the defense lawyers who are either public defenders or private lawyers who are taking cases and are paid by the state. And we've all heard it said probably often that in America, there's two systems of justice, one for people with a lot of money, one for everybody else. And I, I, it seems to be the case. How, how much of a problem is the fact that innocent defendants are often pressured to plead guilty to a lesser charge. What, what are the current motivations for the innocent to accept mm -hmm. a plea to a lesser charge, copying a plea, as it were, to which they mm -hmm. are, in fact, equally innocent? What changes could address mm -hmm. that unfairness? Uh, yes. Uh, approximately 15% of the people who are found to be innocent actually pleaded guilty right despite oh. knowing that they were innocent mm. and your great question is why does someone who's innocent plead guilty and say that i committed a crime the reasons are many fold but at the top is that our sentences in the united states are so severe that a conviction at trial on the top count of an indictment or the top charge, let's just say it's robbery, can equal a sentence of 25 years in prison. In some states, judges have discretion to levy sentences from probation to 25 years. I'm using 25 years as an example, mm -hmm. but that wouldn't be uncommon for a robbery in many states. And in other states, a conviction for an armed robbery for example, might have a mandatory sentence of a certain number of years. If you're in court and you're thinking, I'm an innocent person, and everybody believes I'm guilty, however, and if I go to trial and the jury, like everybody around me currently, believes I'm guilty, then I stand to go to prison for 10 years. If you're offered a sentence of a lower-level robbery and three years in prison, that's very enticing for an innocent person. It's an economic decision. Of course, it's very emotional, a decision that one has to make. But if you're the innocent person and you think there's a strong likelihood that you'll be convicted and receive 10 years in prison, then you'll strongly consider taking the sentence of three years in prison and a lesser robbery count. Boy. And the, the main reason for mm -hmm. that is that our sentences are very severe. Yes. And uh, they're more severe, far more severe than sentences in every other Western country. And I have wondered, not not to wander too far off, of course, there's a lot to this, to the system of justice in general, but there's the ancient idea of penitence. You know, I wonder, 25 years, whatever, does that make the person become better behaved is more time going to make him or her you know more penitent mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. and uh i it's you know mm -hmm. again i don't want to wander too far of course but i uh-huh uh, it's a it's a great question 
And other countries have concluded that 25 years for a robbery would be too many years, would be too long. The United States still authorizes that kind of sentence for a robbery in almost every state. So in a way, one could possibly think that it's not about justice so much as as punishment. Punishment is different from uh, corrections, you know, and just uh, mm-hmm. it's, it could be said to be kind of cruel. How? Well, let me ask this. What mm-hmm. motivated you to write this book? And who is the audience for it, do you think? Mm-hmm. It's not exactly, you know, easy reading and, you know, <laughs> it's not fun stuff. What was your motivation for it? How did you uh, come to write this? I- I think everybody has a fear of being wrongfully accused. True. (laughs) And it's a nightmare-like fear that people have. And the notion of a plea of innocence, for me, is not limited to criminal cases, but it's broader than that. Mm. It's an idea that I'm somehow being treated unjustly. And while I focus, yes, as you note, on the legality surrounding people who are innocent and convicted and the plea of innocence, I think it's more important or just as important to consider how we've come to this state, this situation where we don't have a mechanism for innocent people Uh. to step up and separate themselves from the people who are guilty. As I indicated at the beginning, probably at least 75 percent, it's probably more than that, of the people who are arrested have committed some crime. That doesn't mean they've committed the crime for which they've been arrested, but they're probably guilty of some crime. We see that and we then lump in with them all the people who are innocent, whether it's 4 percent or 6 percent or some similar percentage, and they have no opportunity to plead innocent and have the prosecution help them, especially if they're willing to speak up and tell what they know. They're in jail with all of the other people who are guilty, and they have no more rights than the guilty person. And I'm saying if somebody can say reasonably, plausibly, however we want to describe it, or if he's just willing to speak up to the prosecution and say, I want to tell my story, And I believe it's a truthful story. I know it's a truthful story. And if I'm willing to do this, disclose to you what I know, then you should have the the, uh, responsibility to go look for the exonerating evidence Uh that I identify, Uh the alibi witness, for example. So that's quite a bit different. The the entering a plea of innocent is, is quite a bit different, really, from the plea of not guilty. Yes, by pleading not guilty, someone uh, says that I challenge the government to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that I Uh committed a crime. Uh By pleading innocent, I, the defendant, am taking on some responsibility because I'm desperate. Nobody believes that I am innocent and I'm willing to speak up. But in return for my willingness to speak up, If somebody speaks up and he tells everything he knows, where he was on a particular day when a crime occurred, then that's a huge advantage for the prosecution. But if he's willing to do that and tell everything that he knows, then he should have some help in the form of the prosecution going forward and helping him to try 
to find the exonerating evidence that he's identified. He can't just say, I'm innocent, go find evidence that I'm innocent. He has a responsibility to say, I believe that there is an alibi witness out there because at 9.05, I was driving slowly away from the donut shop and I saw people on the street corner who I waved to and I know they exist. Uh Let's help me find them. Yeah, that does sound reasonable, I must say. I mean, it might cost the state a few more pennies, but uh, yeah, okay, justice (laughs) is a little more important than that. And we all know the Supreme Court that exists now has taken a lot of well-deserved hits recently. Yeah, but it's never held that a freestanding claim of innocence is a basis for relief under the Constitution. And uh, in researching this, the, the... Alexander Hamilton wrote in Federalist Number 83 that uh, the Constitution's due process protections uh, have are trying to prevent judicial despotism through arbitrary, his words, arbitrary methods of prosecuting pretended offenses and arbitrary punishments upon arbitrary convictions. How's that going? You're right, Bert, and you you noted what almost no one in America would believe if they read the sentence literally. And it was a sentence by Justice Antonin Scalia in a case from 2009. He wrote, and this is correct, and it remains correct. I'm not saying it's right, but it is correct legally. The Supreme Court has never held that an actually innocent person who has received a fair trial the police acted properly, mm-hmm. the prosecution and jury and judge acted properly, cannot be convicted and even executed. And I'm only paraphrasing somewhat, but that is the basic principle that exists today. We don't believe in our heart of hearts, I think, that the Supreme Court would hold that it can't somehow correct a verdict by a jury where the Supreme Court justices believe an innocent man is convicted and sentenced to death. But nonetheless, the principle that the Supreme Court has never held that illustrates how difficult it is for somebody who has some evidence of innocence will have his life if he is convicted. And as you noted at the beginning, he'll serve decades or an entire lifetime in prison because the judicial response to claims of innocence after conviction, after the jury has found somebody guilty, is that there's almost no right to introduce newly discovered evidence, or at least a very limited right. Mm. That's why I've said, yes, we can litigate all these cases. We can say that the police did something wrong. The defense attorney was inadequate. The prosecutor hid evidence. But that now occurs years or decades after somebody has been convicted. That's insufficient for right now, there are probably up to 80,000 innocent people who are in prison. And there, of course, are millions of people who are innocent who have been convicted. It's just an insufficient way to operate. We have to try to develop a method to protect innocent people, or at least give them an opportunity to prove their innocence prior to trial. That sounds so reasonable, dare I say, using that word. How, how, can you, how can you ensure that the changes you're proposing will not be used by guilty people to avoid convictions? 
The one reason is that it's almost impossible for somebody who's guilty ah. to lie and get away with it. That Lying is a very difficult endeavor, especially when prosecutors are willing to pounce on your lies and will have every opportunity to determine whether you were lying, to investigate leads, to check whether you really were driving away from the donut shop at 9.05 on the night of the robbery or whether you might have had an opportunity to be at the donut shop at 9.05 or waiting around the corner. Moreover, uh, defendants' uh, attorneys in the plea of innocence would have to affirm innocence, as in all civil cases. Attorneys in civil cases have to make a good faith claim that the pleadings that they're introducing into court are true based on the best of their belief. If their client tells them that, yes, I robbed the clerk at the donut store last night, then the attorneys cannot affirm evidence and the defendant cannot sustain a plea of innocence. In both of those situations, the attorney having to affirm innocence and the defendant having to speak to the prosecution with the prosecution having the right to try to find evidence to show that the guilty defendant is lying are great deterrents to anybody trying to plead innocent and, as one would say, get over on the legal system. I don't know that it can be done. I suppose it's theoretically possible, but if one person does it and a hundred innocent people are protected by the plea of innocence, then it's probably worth it. But mm -hmm. as I said also, our country hasn't been willing to mm -hmm. engage in a discussion of how many uh, guilty people should go free so that one innocent person can be spared. That's for sure. And this is, of course, an election year. And in every election in, in countries all over the world, the right is is pretty much guaranteed to raise the fear of crime, whether it's a real issue or not. It's certainly the case in current electoral political ads. Fear is powerful. It can be manipulated very well, and they know it. For example, mm -hmm. and I found this interesting, far-right mm -hmm. Texas Senator Tom Cotton recently wrote, we don't have an over-incarceration problem. We have an under-incarceration problem. Mm -hmm. He actually said that. In that mm -hmm. exaggerated emotional context, which we face now, where they're using fear of crime, how optimistic are you that the, the changes that you're suggesting can be made and that maybe Americans care enough about protecting the innocent? The measure will be whether Americans care enough to protect the innocent or whether they're willing to allow four to six percent of the people who are convicted and innocent to languish as convicted people and or in prison. I'm unsure of their willingness uh, to make changes. Yes. Some of the arguments against making changes would be that four to six percent isn't such a great percentage. I think it's a too high percentage, oh, mainly yes. because we can lower the percentage without increasing the number of guilty people who are exonerated. It's a approach that we have, and it's an option that's there. Defendants don't have to plead innocent. They can still plead not guilty, and everything would stay the same. However, then 
we're still going to have the same system if we don't have any change or reform in the system. And it has been this way for 300 years. Yeah. I'll give one last sure. anecdote, and I think I can sum it up this way. This is what people probably do not recognize either. In criminal cases, as you noted, the test is not for truth. The test is whether the prosecution can prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. In this system, the defense attorney even is not part of the uh, acquisition of truth, of course, because defense attorneys don't want the truth to be known when they believe that their clients are guilty. But in this system that purports to be focused on truth, defense attorneys are permitted to cross-examine witnesses they know to be truthful and accurate, somebody who correctly says that the client did commit the crime, and then they are ethically entitled to argue to the jury or to a judge, if a judge is Mm -hmm. the trier of the case, that the witness they know to be truthfully and accurately identifying their client was, in fact, untruthful or did have an inability to identify their client. It's an ethical option that lawyers can have. And where did that ethical option come from? It came from lawyers' ethical rules, which were drafted by lawyers and approved by judges via the state Supreme Courts. That's not a rule that has been approved by legislators or a rule that's been approved by the public, if the public even knows about it. But there's nowhere else in society that we could say to our bosses or to anyone else that I am asserting to you that something that I know to be truthful is false or something that I know to be false is truthful. Defense lawyers can make that assertion in that system. It's an illustration of how far we've come from the goal of trying to find truth in the American legal system. Mm. And that is part of the name of the book, the title of the book. Uh, Our guest uh, is the author of the book, Tim Backen, the soon-to-be-released The Plea of Innocence, Restoring Truth to the American Justice System. There's a lot to it. Thank you so much for being with us today. Very, very interesting stuff. Nice if it made a difference. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bert.